everybody. Welcome back to Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin, and today I wanted to talk about, you probably hear the dogs in the back, but today I wanted to talk about what is going on between Russia and different countries within continental Africa. So, first things first, <laughs> most of the time, Americans I tend to find, and I'm sure other people in Western countries, don't really understand just how nutrient-rich continental Africa is. And that's a very important thing to discuss first, because I know for some people they may think, well, what's there, right? And you have to imagine the things that we see in our media about these countries in continental Africa is not necessarily representative of what is actually going on or what is actually present. And what I mean by that is that a lot of people tend to think that, you know, there's no wealth that's generated within African countries. And, you know, if you've seen any late night infomercials or commercials, even sometimes during the day, then I think you have an image of what I'm talking about. They generally show people within continental Africa as being like in need of some type of charity, right? And they do the same thing with South Asia, right, and Southeast Asia. But it's part of making you not really think about why we're there in the first place, why other colonizing countries are there currently in the first place. And it, if you think back to Kipling and the white man's burden and, you know, the colonization of the Pacific, Hawaii, the Philippines... It's all part of that same idea. It's making you think that these people are just objects of missionary charity. They need capital D democracy, capital C capitalism, and that we are there, we, comma, the colonizers are there to help them live more fulfilled lives, just like we are, right? That's the, that's the idea behind the imagery that you get about those countries. And so... A lot of people don't necessarily understand that Africa as a continent is the most natural resource rich continent and most continents have natural resources but much of the technology that we have for example is from elements that come from this continent. A lot of the stones, precious metals, they come from this continent. And so that's why it's, I'm saying it's the most resource rich because it generates the most money for the people who are extracting it. Now, that also comes into play with the imagery that we get about those countries and the people within these countries, because if we think, we Westerners think, oh, well, these are poor countries that don't really have any direction and they can't feed themselves, right? They can't feed their children. Then it's easier to rationalize why these same countries are within these African countries and extracting their wealth in exchange, quote unquote, for food or using them as workers. Um, uh, some of the same imagery happened in this country after the Civil War was over. Right now that the slaves have been freed, it's like, oh, well, they need to get to work. So let's paint them as lazy and, um, you know, ruining the environment around them because of their, and this is all made up, you know, none of this was true, but, you know, the image that black people and, you know, black men specifically were going to be roaming around the South looking for retribution, which never happened on like a mass scale. Um, 
certainly nowhere near the opposite that they need to be controlled. And so that has turned into, you know, what is now the prison industrial complex. So it's all done to like justify the violences done on whoever the group is that's being marginalized. Okay. So within continental Africa, like I said, some of the natural resources that are very important that come out of the continent are things like iron, zinc, titanium, copper, gold, sulfur, diamonds, salt, phosphates, petroleum, different types of coal. There's also coffee, crude oil, uranium, cotton. I'm not sure if I said iron, but iron ore, natural gas, textiles, you know, things like ivory. So all those things are big money makers for different corporations around the world. And some of them are also American corporations. Now, when we're talking about Niger, or I guess in if you're trying to say it more French, you would say Niger, because the French had colonized Niger. Um, the country has its natural resources. Some of the big ones are uranium, coal, iron ore, tin, phosphates, gold, petroleum. Agriculturally speaking, there's millet, sorghum, rice, corn, fruits, vegetables, cotton, peanuts, cassava, and cowpeas. And we can just talk about uranium first because, you know, I know some people, I haven't seen it. I generally don't go to the movies much anymore unless it's like a screening of really old movies and I want to see it on the big screen. But um, some of you just saw Oppenheimer. And so that was about the nuclear bomb. I took a class about the nuclear bomb at UCSD when I was an undergrad. And we, you know, for 10 weeks, we talked about the elements that went into the bomb, the impact that the bomb had for the war, the impact that it had for the indigenous populations of the Pacific Islands who were affected by the test radiation, things like that. So, and um, atomic and the nuclear bomb. So, um, when it comes to uranium, you need uranium for nuclear bombs. And so Niger having uranium as one of its principal natural resources is a big deal. <laughs> and it's important to note that one out of every three light bulbs in France is powered with uranium from Niger. But within Niger, only 18 to 19% of the population have access to electricity. So you know, 30% of the light bulbs in France are powered with uranium from a country where only 18% of the population of that country has access to electricity. That is a systemic inequity. That doesn't make sense, right? And I know some of you might be thinking, well, why, if they're producing that many, if their uranium is producing those light bulbs, why is it that more people there don't have electricity? Because that's part of the co the colonialist model. That's part of imperialism. What happens is you extract those resources from those countries and then you take them, you know, or through globalization, you take parts from other countries to make a product wherever it's going to be. And then you bring that product back to your Western country. In this case with like light bulbs, but many more things, right? So the people within those countries, yes, they have the uranium, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have an infrastructure or a 
economic model that uh, permits the average person to purchase light bulbs. Because oftentimes what happens is that the people who are the leaders are in business with the Western countries and they are hoarding the wealth at the very, very top, much like the wealth in this country is hoarded at the very, very top. And a lot of us are learning more and more through these union strikes. Some of you are paying attention to the actors' strike. We're learning just how much of a facade that the entertainment industry is and how people project this idea that they have amounts of wealth available to them or that, you know, they have, you know, personal wealth. And now you're learning that these people are basically living paycheck to paycheck and that they're having to sell their homes because the very wealthy at the top of the entertainment industry won't budge on the um, demands. So it's a really, there's a lot of parallels, but again, we in this country don't think that we have anything in common with the um, people outside of Europe. Right, We tend to only think about Europeans or other Western countries, even when they are diverse right, racially. We tend to think that we only have things in common with those other Western nations. And really, we have a lot in common with many people around the world in different spaces and in different ways, too. But that's also part of the design, is that if you don't know what's going on, for example, in different African countries you're not going to be able to connect it to what you're experiencing in the United States. If you don't know what's going on in um, Australia, you don't know what's going on in Korea, you don't understand what's going on in Chile or Argentina, then you're not going to be able to connect it and think about, okay, well, what does this mean on the bigger scale? So the reason why I also brought up um, Niger is because, you know, some of you have been paying attention to what's been going on in Russia. And Vladimir Putin has basically said that he is going to excuse the debts of African nations as a way to fight neocolonialism. So Putin has allegedly promised free grain to six African nations and assured them that Moscow was trying to avert a global food crisis. And, you know, of course, he's tying Ukraine into it. I'm reading this from Al Jazeera. And Ukraine is one of the world's largest grain producers. And so I have mentioned that before. Some of you weren't consciously aware, like, especially if you're younger, like this happened when you were a kid. And I mean, consciously, where like you weren't paying attention to world news, like you had other things to worry about, right? Um, But... The United States has had its eye on Ukraine for a very long time because of that. Grain is a big deal, especially when you're on the verge of a global food crisis. And we've been dealing with the rumors of food crises before the last few years. I know some of you may have started paying more attention to that because of COVID and a lot of the items that were having a hard time being restocked on shelves because, you know, yes, people were hoarding more than their fair share. We understand that. Um, But also it wasn't being produced as much. And so grain is a principal product in many things. And when you're dealing with an economic crisis, right, access to grain is crucial because it can be filling. So you all know that I have a gluten allergy, right? So I... I can't really eat grain anyway. 
but grain is a big staple of the American diet. It's a big staple of Western diets. So if you think about everything that has grains in it, so yes, things like bread, but also things like pasta, most cereals have grains, things like that. Even some medicine has grain or um, sometimes it's listed as gluten, but it has grain as a binder for the pills right, that you take, the pharmaceuticals that people take. So it's a big staple in the Western diet. And so I believe that Putin understands this. I think, you know, and I remember years ago, the United States was kind of getting involved in some stuff in Ukraine because we wanted access to that grain, I believe. So there were representatives of 49 countries, including 17 heads of state that had a summit in Moscow. And they signed a declaration, apparently, that calls for, quote, the establishment of a more just, balanced and stable multipolar world order firmly opposing all types of international confrontation in the African continent, unquote. So it's also important to discuss the fact that many African nations have sanctions put on them by their formal colonial power, even if they still do business with them. And what I mean by that is a lot of that can be contributed to why the average person within these countries doesn't have more economic prowess, especially with how many natural resources are within the continent the people within the countries of that continent should be able to have more than they do, right? And a lot of the reason why they can't is because of these economic sanctions and then, of course, like I said, the hoarding at the top. So by Putin declaring that, well, actually, he's been he's informing, right? Because if you're into human design, Putin is a manifester. So he's informing people that he is going to clear the debt. That really opens up other some of these other countries that would presumably have their debt cleared to charge market rate for whatever is being extracted from their country. So with that being said, they don't have to worry about, you know, an amount of debt that's being held over their head that is slowly being chipped away by reduced um, reduced prices on their natural resources that are being sent to France or sent to the U.S. or sent to, you know, England or wherever. They can charge whatever they want. So that opens them up to have more of their own capital and to also dictate who they're going to do business with. Let's say Niger decides, you know, we're not going to sell France any of our uranium anymore. We're going to sell it to... Russia, right? Because um, some of you have seen that there have been people who are in some of these countries holding up Russian flags and, you know, boosting up Putin. And this is a really big deal. Now, I haven't really seen much of this on American media. I don't really watch the news that much, but even LA Times, um, maybe I just missed it because I tend to read the LA Times on the app, but this is a really big deal. And it's one of those things, too, where, you know, we'll see if the United States gets involved militarily, because generally speaking, this would be the time that we would do that because it affects our economic interests. So when you look at different wars, conflicts that the United States has gotten involved in, even if it didn't seem like it, you know, directly impacted us, it does. Because if these countries within continental Africa are gaining economic independence on top of like physical independence, then that means that it's going to cost us more to do business with them, which of course 
is fair, right? Because we should have been paying them these market rates before. However, it's bad for us economically. And that will affect the average person in this country. Because if you think about it, if we're buying uranium from some of these countries, not necessarily Niger, but other countries as well, then if the price goes up, that affects our ability for our weaponry, our nuclear weaponry, um, our, you know, the, the tools, like I said, the other natural resources that we use to produce phones for American companies, even if those companies are headquartered abroad, like, you know, Apple or something. If they have to pay more for the minerals or the gold pieces that go into the phones to, you know, to produce the connectivity, it's going to drastically increase the price of iPhones or, you know, any other or MacBooks, any other of their products that they now have to, you know, create um, more profit for themselves because they have to pay more for the raw materials to make it. So that's a really big deal. Also, Putin is playing chess, not checkers. He's playing the long game. And it's crazy to watch because, again, like as a historian understanding some of the foundational things that are going on here, it makes sense that he would do something like this because he needs allies and there are more people who are harmed by colonialism than are benefited by it. In fact, we there are more people who are harmed by capitalism than who are benefited by it. We're seeing that now in the United States. So by Putin allegedly aligning himself with these Western nations, it sets him up to have access to their resources for cheaper than they'll sell it to his enemies, which would be, for example, us, right, the United States. And it also means that he is able to have allies with regard to soldiers, with regard to, like I said, natural resources, but... um, that, those alliances are how people win wars, and this is how they circumvent sanctions. Same thing with the United States. I've talked before about, you know, how after the American Revolution, you know, this country was in open rebellion against England, but we were able to do business with France because France hated England, right? So we were doing business with the enemies of our enemies. And so this is the same thing. This is military strategy. This is economic strategy like he's setting himself up for the long game and while most of us are paying attention to okay well you know what's going on in Ukraine yes we're thinking of we're thinking small fish we're thinking oh this is between Russia and Ukraine like no this is this is about Russia and trying to establish more of a world dominance it's not just gonna stop at Ukraine right most of these things never do stop they continue to bubble up So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few months in these African nations and how even the economies of Europe are going to be affected by that. And these things will affect, you know, the cost of everything. Some of you know that I've talked about it on the podcast if you hadn't heard, but there were protests in France, for example. There have, you know, been unrest largely due to the fact that, you know, working people and people who have unions and pensions have less and less access and people in general have less and less access to meet their basic needs. So when they're being asked to work longer than they originally, you know, that they're contractually obligated to, when they're extending those contracts without the vote of these people who are affected by it, 
when even in this country where you have executives who are not meeting union demands for people, it really shows you that there is so much more to collectively align with than we tend to think and how interconnected everything is. But when it comes to France specifically in, you know, Niger, it will have an effect on the French population because they're already protesting, right? Things are increasingly expensive for everybody around the world. And now things like light bulbs, which you would imagine are even in this country, they're pretty inexpensive. Those things are, could potentially go up in price. And if we're on a global food shortage, right, then, and of course, like I mentioned in the article, Putin's mentioning this when he's meeting with these different um, countries within continental Africa, that makes sure that his people in Russia will have access to a source that they can use to sustain themselves. So this is long game. Interesting stuff. So... The next thing I want to talk about is the U.S. response to this. So the United States threatened to pull funding from Niger. And what's going on is there was a, the democratically elected leader in um, Niger. So it was President Mohamed Bazoum. He was overthrown, but they're not quite calling it a coup. More so like a takeover? I'm not exactly sure what they're officially calling it, but the United States threatened to pull aid from the country. And in a moment of just unspeakable tea, (laughs) the new leader, spokesman of the military in Niger, said that the United States should keep their aid and give it to their millions of homeless people in the United States of America. Charity begins at home. So that was the response to the U.S. saying that they would pull aid. And that really just made me stop and pause because it's it's the truth, right? But again, it's, these, it's people around the world being tired of being relegated to just, you know, object, um, missionary charity, like, they're tired of just being like, oh, well, we're going to pull the money. It's like, okay, well, fine. Use the money for your own people. We don't need your money, right? They have other options for partnership, clearly, right? Like, as we just talked about. And recently, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, he's quoted as saying, our economic and security partnership with Niger, which is significant, hundreds of millions of dollars, depends on the continuation of the democratic governance and constitutional order that has been disrupted by the actions in the last few days. So he said that in Australia while he was on a tour of the Pacific. So if we were in person together talking about this, I would ask you, had you heard about any of this stuff that was going on? Because if our press sec- if our excuse me not press secretary if our secretary of state is admitting that we have hundreds of millions of dollars that are and in jeopardy here because of this new military takeover and potentially a coup, that means that we may get into military conflict with them. And you have to think, what impact will that have on this country in the United States? You know, do we have enough personnel to do that? Do we have enough people who are willing to join the military if we need more people to fight? We talked about this a few, maybe last year on the podcast, but military recruitment is at an all-time low. Many Americans don't want anything to do with that, right? They are not prepared 
to to fight for the military and a lot of them wouldn't pass the standards that the military has for entrance and even those who would pass it are even saying that they're not interested they don't want to be in the military they don't want to be you know conscripted to the military so that may have an effect too and if you think military militarily strategically if we're involved if we're sending all this money to ukraine we're threatening we the country the united states we're sending this money to ukraine we're threatening to pull aid from niger we also have to deal with the fact that you know we have people who are in economic binds in this country and can barely afford to eat or pay their bills do we really have a populace that can sustain a war domestically? Do we have a domestic populace that can sustain a war? Now, some of you might be thinking, you know, well, you know, we did have the great, I mean, you know, we did have the Great Depression in this country and our entrance and involvement in World War II helped pull us out of that economic um, strain and also created a large um, economic boom in this country after the war was over. Sure, right? So, I mean, those things have happened before. So, some people may think that it might be good economically to get involved in this, but, you know, a big part of why we were able to do so much domestically in World War II was because of morale. You had a lot of people who were incentivized and who wanted to prove their, themselves. And this was in the 40s, so we we're still de- dealing with sexism and racism on the on the level that it was permitted and legal. So now, sure, you know, those things are technically illegal, but we know that they're still happening. I don't know if we have a populace of people who f- would be in the same mindset to try to prove themselves for that same equality. I think a lot of people feel like, you know, history should speak for itself. Like we've had hundreds of years of working together. We've had hundreds of years of people not fighting back in retaliation mass scale, even though they were being marginalized and killed. I don't know if we would have people who would be willing to continue to be involved in those things. And that's really sad because, you know, like I said, this has the potential to affect you know, the average person in the United States as well, even if we don't know why we're being affected. Because again, we don't tend to think about the news that comes out of continental Africa as relevant to the news that is in the United States or connect to it as much as we do about like the news in Europe. So what I would say is, you know, in the next few weeks, be paying attention to what's going on. In Russia, um, between Russia and different nations, you know, in the African continent, we'll see if it expands maybe into the, the Asian continent, into the South Asian continent. And, you know, be on the lookout because I hadn't heard about any of this, but it is very, very important stuff. So with that being said, um, this is the first week back for many of us for school. So to my fellow educators, keep fighting the good fight. For the students, I hope you have a good, you know, opening term. And, you know, for the listeners, of course, thank you as always for listening to the podcast. I could never articulate how much I appreciate it, but I really do appreciate you. And 
I thank you for coming back each week to listen to history-related stuff. (laughs) And I know this one was more rooted in the present, but I thought it was, you know, had connections to the history, but also I just wanted people to be aware of it so they could be on the lookout for it. I will see you all on the next episode of Happy Hour History. Everyone have a good week. Bye. Thank you.